The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Kris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. The cheese slid completely off Trump's cracker yesterday in Derry, New Hampshire. The first time I ever posited in private that his brain does not work right was in 1983. The first time I ever posited in public that his brain doesn't work right was in a piece and video I did for Vanity Fair in 2016 called Could Trump Pass a Sanity Test? And I do not know what the next step down is mentally or psychologically or intellectually from no, he could not pass a sanity test, but Trump has now reached it. One speech... Four statements that in a previous century would have been examined as signs of possible tertiary syphilis. And while a new front has been opened in the constitutional case against Trump, permit me to introduce you to my friend the vesting clause of Article 2, Section 1 in a moment. While that's happening, we need to make Trump's accelerating mental instability and clear deterioration as big an issue as his corruption and his authoritarianism, because as shown in these separate insane remarks in New Hampshire, this guy is out of his effing mind. Come for us. You know how you spell us, right? You spell us, U.S. I just picked that up. Has anyone ever thought of that? I just picked that up a couple of days I'm reading and it said us. And I said, you know, if you think about it, us equals U.S. Isn't it? Now, if we say something genius, they'll never say it. Tune in tomorrow when Trump becomes the first man ever to discover there's no I in team or in FDR. They said that was one of the greatest speeches since FDR. 
You know, FDR was a great speaker, right? He was a great speaker. He, he sat, he sat because of a situation, but he was an elegant, beautiful, eloquent, elegant and eloquent. So he couldn't remember why Franklin D. Roosevelt sat and he clearly couldn't remember what that thing was he sat in, but at least he got his initials right. And the madness of King Trump is not limited to stuff in this country. Victor Orban, did ever, anyone ever hear of him? He's probably like one of the strongest leaders anywhere in the world. And he, uh, he's the leader of, right? He's the leader of Turkey Front, so in both Russia. Victor Orban rules Hungary. Recep Tayyip Erdogan rules Turkey. Unless Trump meant Keith Urban. A reminder, this is all in the same speech. I don't mind being Nelson Mandela because I'm doing it for a reason. I'm doing it for a reason. It is amazing to state aloud that a man who has been, however he achieved that power, president of the United States and his fascist party's nominee for the office a second and probably a third time to state that that man has delusions of grandeur. But if Donald Trump thinks he is Nelson Mandela, he's got delusions of grandeur. Unless he plans to spend, like Mandela, 27 years in prison. Oh, and lastly, Trump also told his voters to not bother to vote. Well, you got to get out there and you got to watch those voters. You don't have to vote. Don't worry about voting. The voting, we got plenty of votes. There is no greater defense available against the spurious charges that Joe Biden is too old or too reserved to serve a second term than to go on the offense on this issue. Trump's mental incapacity has been documented since childhood when neighbors saw him throwing rocks at an infant in a carriage at a neighbor's house has been documented since his classmates in the military reform school they sent him to saw him try to push another student out a second-story window, has been documented since New York media used to get calls from Trump identifying himself as Trump spokesman John Miller or Trump vice president John Barron, only it was Trump and he didn't even bother to try to change his voice and he was already so crazy that he thought nobody would notice. I said it in 2016. And I said it in 2020, and I'm saying it again after the meltdown in Derry yesterday by our Nelson Mandela about Orban of Turkey, who just discovered there are 26 letters. He's crazy. We have to put political correctness aside and call him crazy in public every day. For every reference to Biden's age, we must have 10 references to Trump's insanity in the word cloud of people's impressions of him. Crazy, insane, mentally ill, psychotic, deranged. These all have to literally loom large. Because it's not just politically useful, it also unfortunately happens to be true. Trump is crazy, and it continues to risk the survival of this nation, and for that matter, the survival of everybody on this planet. And oh, by the way, after that, could Trump survive a sanity test piece? Spoiler alert, no, no, he couldn't. I was on a PBS show with the veteran Republican operative Ed Rollins, who was consulting Trump's campaign at the time. 
as we finished and we each packed up our stuff and left the studio, Ed turned to me and he said he'd read the piece and he said, by the way, you're absolutely right. He's crazy. He's really crazy. He may also be the first political figure in our nation's history to be personally unconstitutional. You know about the still embryonic bids to disqualify Trump under Section 3, the Rebellion Clause in the 14th Amendment. Now there is another legal maneuver involving the Constitution designed to get Judge Tanya Chutkin and others later to make certain that nobody goes along with this monarchist madness that Trump cannot be prosecuted for trying to overturn the election and overthrow the democracy because he had, quote, absolute immunity because he happened to be president while he committed these crimes. Trump is using this imaginary concept to demand that the entirety of the Washington prosecution be dismissed now. And it's not likely to be, but at some point in one of the prosecutions, one of the appeals, this year or next, or if it continues into 2025, then it will come up again. And Judge Michael Luttig wants to make sure you remember that when it does, you need to hit Trump over the head with the executive vesting clause in the Constitution. It is so simple an argument that you would likely miss it even if you studied the Constitution. I've only studied it since 1969, and I've basically driven right past this clause for uh, 54 years now. Quote, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years. This is so ingrained in this country's history, in its machinery, it's like suddenly noticing that there are 24 hours in a day or that the letters U.S. can spell the word us and be the acronym for the United States. Wait, that's not a good example. Anyway, the point of Luddig and the other 23 former Republican officeholders, including former Governor Whitman of New Jersey and former Congresswoman Comstock and Reagan counsel Wendell Wilkie II, who signed the amicus curiae submitted to Judge Chutkin, is that we have taken for granted one of the great compromises in our nation's history. The second sentence of the clause, they write, requires a first-term president who loses re-election to leave office at the end of his term. This was an important selling point during ratification. The Constitutional Convention initially adopted provisions of a draft constitution that would elect a president for a single seven-year term and make each president ineligible for re-election. The convention later switched course and framed a constitution that enabled a president to seek re-election, but the executive vesting clause limited every presidential term to four years, unquote. As they then quote the Virginia delegate to the Constitutional Convention, Edmund Randolph, the president, quote, may not hold his office without being reelected. He cannot hold it over four years unless he be reelected any more than if he were prohibited from running, unquote. Trump not only tried to tamper with that fundamental premise of the vesting clause, you lose, you leave, and a second fundamental premise of it, the next president is vested and he starts on January 20th. But if any court were to grant this or any other president absolute immunity from prosecution, as Luddig and the others write, that court would be then granting any 
sitting president in the future, the right to try to steal an election he's lost without fear of going to jail, without fear of merely being stopped by the laws he is there to uphold. Quoting again, the impact of absolute immunity on the executive vesting clause is the issue in this case that threatens the greatest danger to public interests outside this case, namely the danger to the sanctity of future presidential elections. In our divided nation, in the last eight re-election campaigns, the incumbent lost four times, 1976, 1980, 1992, and 2020, and won competitive races twice, 2004 and 2012. Granting absolute immunity in this case would incentivize even knowing and corrupt illegal conduct by a first-term president to usurp another term and thus would imperil the executive vesting clause Unquote. In short, this prosecution is about far more than just Trump and just preserving elections this time. It is about preserving elections in this country for all time. Judge Ludwig and his fellow conservatives are warning not just Tanya Chutkin, who does not need this warning, but all the judges that to listen to this argument is to subvert the Constitution. It is essentially to incite rebellion against the Constitution. And speaking of that, the 14th Amendment test case in Colorado, mocked by Trump, mocked by his MAGA cult, mocked even by many liberals and most of the media, in the media's case because it includes the number 14, which is higher than most of the media can count. It lives! The Colorado District Judge Sarah Wallace has not only ruled against Trump's bid to dismiss it, but she's taken his three separate motions and rubbed them in his face. No, it is not clear that the 14th Amendment does not give the Colorado Secretary of State the right to block Trump from the ballot in her state. No, Colorado law does not give political parties rather than the state the final say on who is on the ballot and who is not. And no, it is not just the federal government. The state does, too, have the right to disqualify a candidate who is, quote, constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. And just to really pound this into Trump's groin, the then appeals court judge whose opinion she quotes on that last point is Neil Gorsuch. So, Mr. Trump, anything else you'd like to be wrong about today? Thank you, Nancy Faust. Update from the Atlanta trial, or as we call it now, let's make a plea deal. Kenny the Cheese. Kenneth Chesbro followed Sidney Powell to the altar with Fonnie Willis and the stark reality that no matter what his lawyer says about how his guilty plea implicated only himself, Chesbro has, in fact, garroted Donald Trump. He has admitted, confessed, pleaded guilty to count 15 by saying under oath and on tape, that the fake electors were fake and their, quote, purpose was to, quote, disrupt and delay the joint session of Congress of January 6, 2021, which is pretty much the entirety of Jack Smith's entire election subversion case reduced to as few words as possible. Lock them up. Also, 
Trump has been caught in a slam dunk lie about the Kraken weirdo. He now claims online, Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. A sentence which by itself may be further evidence of his recent mental decline. Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. If the video of Rudy Giuliani introducing her as one of Trump's attorneys were not sufficient nor direct enough, on November 14th, 2020, Trump tweeted, quote, Rudy Giuliani, Joseph DeGeneva, Victoria Tensing, Sidney Powell, and Jenna Ellis, a truly great team added to our other wonderful lawyers and representatives. If you've missed this... Trump's attitude, meantime, towards the two gag orders rather resembles somebody who thinks he can walk across hot coals without knowing the one weird trick to survive. While Judge Chutkin has tabled the gag order in the Washington case, while Trump tries to get another court to overturn it, Trump may still have managed to violate it because the order forbids him from public comments about the prosecutor, and he, of course, called him deranged again on Sunday, but in connection with the Florida documents case while denying he gave away secrets about our nuclear submarines to the Australian billionaire Anthony Pratt, whom Trump dismissed with as Freudian a line as he has ever composed. Trump called Pratt, quote, a red-haired weirdo. He was also fined by Judge Engeron for violating the New York gag order by leaving up an image of the doxing of Engeron's court clerk. It was only a fine because Engeron more or less had to buy the lawyer's claim that it was not taken down. It was only up there by accident this time, the first time. And Trump naturally responded to this by then posting a video clip of Engeron with somebody else's note that, quote, in 2015, the judge from the Trump case gave a lecture to some college students. It's scary to think the amount of power this lunatic currently has, unquote. Expand the gag order, Judge Engeron. Mark my words on this. It is going to happen, and is going to happen sooner than we're prepared for. Judge Engeron, or Judge Chutkin, or even Judge Cannon, who has a limited gag order in the Florida case, too. One of them is going to, at minimum, order Trump into court and face-to-face threaten to jail him unless he immediately grovels. And I don't know what happens when he refuses to grovel. One more thing. Never try to outguess Margot, goes the line from the movie classic All About Eve. The latest, newest, this may have already changed by the time you hear this, likely Republican nominee for Speaker of the House is Tom Emmer, whom I mentioned here weeks ago as the likeliest one to take over if they really did pull a Julius Caesar on McCarthy. Emmer has a problem, though. There are nine candidates for this job, which means the Republicans may be electing their 12th choice. And only two of the nine did not try to help Trump overthrow democracy by voting to not certify the 2020 election. Emmer is one of the two. Trump said something yesterday about how he and Emmer had always worked well together, and Emmer immediately retweeted video of it, and in the process he kissed Trump's ample ass, and Trump's surrogates immediately turned around and began to circulate a 216-page book of oppo research against Tom Emmer. Never try to outguess Margot. It is not true that all 86 Republicans who voted by secret ballot last week to ditch Jim Jordan as nominee number two did not support him or did not support Trump or feel like they're losing their minds as well as their souls by participating in this ongoing conspiracy to turn the nation into an authoritarian state like the one ruled by 
uh, urban mire in Turkey. But I keep wondering if there are enough in that Republican caucus who really have had enough to alter history. 217 votes are needed to elect the next speaker. No Republican's going to get that right now. Five moderate Republicans, or just five exhausted Republicans, leaving their party, not to join the Democrats, but to form a third party and establish an ad hoc temporary coalition with the Democrats. Five Republicans could basically choose one of their own to be the next speaker. It is not anything more than the longest of long shots, but there are easily five out of those 86 who sank Jim Jordan who would do it if they thought they could get reelected anyway. Hell, there are 10 of those. There may be 20. There may be 50. And if and when they start thinking that way and acting upon it, the GOP will have become the party it replaced in the 1850s. As late as 1852, the president of the United States, Millard Fillmore, was a member of, and in fact, the leader of, the Whig Party. By 1856, Fillmore would finish third in the presidential election, and he got eight electoral votes. By 1860, it was a four-man presidential race, and not one of them identified as a member of the Whig Party. This is how things change. Personal desperation some actual patriotism, and the growing awareness that no matter what the American political landscape looks like right now, if you are a Republican, the fact of Donald Trump's increasing madness and decreasing connection to reality and ever-inflating chances of disqualification and conviction and prison, with all that being true, you, members of the Republican Party, have shackled yourself to a corpse. Also of interest here. So you've heard about the desire among Trump supporters to build a wall to keep out immigrants, a wall along the Atlantic. Yes, a wall on the Atlantic Ocean. There's a novel explanation from a congressman for those death threats against the representatives who did not vote for Jim Jordan. That is, they deserve the death threats. And if you thought you had free will, no, you don't. No. In fact, Thinking you have free will? That's not even your choice. You were destined to think that. So says a Stanford neurobiologist. Science! That's next. This is Countdown. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so... 
there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Postscripts to the news. Still ahead on Countdown. Worst persons in the world, and you have no free will. First, something different today, a Trumpian flashback of sorts. Let me try this, see how you like this, and maybe I will work it in from time to time. I just read this piece again, and I realized what a perfect harbinger of the stupidity of the Confederacy of Dunces that was ahead for us. This was my GQ commentary from the 6th of September 2016. The title was The Atlantic Wall, and I present it virtually unchanged. If you watch the speeches, if you read the tweets, if you survived the debate, you probably saw something obvious and disqualifying, like when Sniffy Trump went after Rosie O'Donnell, or he said, we can't defend Japan, or he gave his string of answers in which he did not deny his tax returns would show that he didn't pay anything. And then he said that made him smart. And then he said that if he had paid them, they would have just been squandered. And as the post-debate polls now come out in force, you are probably saying, what? How? How is the margin not bigger? It's because some people saw in that debate, in those speeches, in that hatred and stupidity, their ideal president. Why? How? Huh? The answer is in something that was not addressed in that debate Monday. The Trump wall. Nah, not that wall. The other wall. There is another wall, and it may be the most undercovered slice of madness in this ceaseless 15 months of electoral id. PPP, public policy polling, is one of the few players in the Kafkaesque farce to have maintained some sense of humor. It will ask who you are voting for, but it will also ask, do you have a higher opinion of Donald Trump or of middle seats on airplanes? Middle seats win, by the way, 45 to 42. And in one poll, it asked question 12. And question 12 reads, 
would you support or oppose building a wall along the Atlantic Ocean to keep Muslims from entering the country from the Middle East? No, no, you did not just hallucinate that. But yes, we should look at that one again. Question number 12, would you support or oppose building a wall along the Atlantic Ocean to keep Muslims from entering the country from the Middle East? As you know, there is only one correct answer to that question, and that answer is, are you out of your goddamned mind? But are you out of your goddamned mind was not one of the choices for the answer. It was yes, no, or not sure. And this is how those participants identifying themselves as Trump supporters came out on this vital question of the other Trump wall. 31% said yes, they were in favor of an Atlantic wall to keep out the Muslims. 52% said they were not. 17% said not sure. A wall to keep Muslims from entering this country via the Atlantic. How, how are the, how, how, how are they, I can barely ask the question. How are they supposedly breaching our present Atlantic fortifications? Rowboating in from Syria, are they? Swimming from the ISIS-infected region of Molenbeek in Antwerp straight to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? Even assuming some spark of humanity and intelligence among these 31% of Trump supporters getting from so-called Islamic State to Cuba somehow and then coming up from Cuba on a 1951 Chevy pickup truck repurposed into an ocean-going vessel, is that how they're going to get here? The more you think about this question and the nearly one in three Trump supporters who don't know enough about geography or not enough about construction or not enough about how deep the water in the ocean might be, or not enough about, you know, life. The less lull-worthy it gets, and the more it takes on a shape resembling the entirety of Donald Trump's campaign. Start with a threat that exists only in theory. Since 9-11, no act of terrorism has been conducted in this country by people who are here illegally. Add to that a non-existent paranoid fever that terrorists are streaming into this country from every corner. Multiply all of it by fear and an unthinking desire for mindless revenge and a demagogue happy to exploit it so he can take over this country. And you get question 12. Do you support an Atlantic Wall to keep out the Muslims? Yes, 31%. Let me be clear. Donald Trump has never actually proposed building a wall along the Atlantic which would have to be 2,069 miles long or 10 times that long if you wanted to be really safe and you wanted to block off all the rivers and lakes and the other bodies of water that connect to the Atlantic. He has not proposed destroying every beach and every harbor and every marina and every dock and every pier and every bit of shipping and every business and every city dependent on tourism and beachgoers. He didn't say it. The people who want to vote for him said it. Wall off Miami, all of Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, 2,069 miles. They don't like immigrants. They don't like anybody who's not white. They don't like facts. And they don't like things they don't understand. And they don't like Hillary Clinton. And that's why he's still in the race. He is indeed their ideal president. What we do about their proud, defiant stupidity 
short of finding these 31% who want an Atlantic wall to keep out surfboarding Muslims in burkinis, finding the 31% and forcing them back to the second grade to start all over again, what to do other than that, I don't know. But between now and November 8, do not count them or him out. Trump and his idiot supporters do not know the meaning of the word beaten. Well, actually, uh, they don't know the meaning of a, of a lot of words, and therein lies the problem. The Atlantic Wall, GQ, September 6th, 2016. I wish it wasn't quite as prophetic as it turned out to be. Still ahead on Countdown, the World Series starts Friday. In the old days, they used to make sure the World Series always skipped Fridays because that was the lowest rated night for TV. Now, of course, it doesn't matter. After they beat the Phillies 5-1 yesterday to tie the NL Championship Series, we could still have the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series, in which case the TV audience might not average 10 million a night. And as I like to mention every once in a while, in 1980, the average was like 43 million a night in a country that was only two-thirds as large as this one. Anyway, this means I should tell you the Roger Clemens, Mike Piazza broken bat story from the 2000 World Series 23 years ago this past Sunday, and I should do it before the baseball season is for all intents and purposes over. First, time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Maha Dakil, Tom Cruise's agent. Demoted by her agency, CAA, she was head of motion pictures there, co-head, after she reposted an Instagram story about the Middle East war with the notation, quote, you're currently learning who supports genocide, unquote. Dakiel then posted a fulsome apology, fulsome to the point of unbelievable. I made a mistake with a repost in my Instagram story, which used hurtful language. I'm sorry for the pain I have caused. Choice of words is important, etc., etc., <laughs> yeah, she didn't know what genocide means. Oh, that's what it means? I thought it was like Gen X or Gen Z. Gen O side? Here's a question. You're Cruz or you're Reese Witherspoon or you're one of our other clients, and you want to deal with this being asked of you for the rest of your career? The runner's up. It's a tie. Robert Sapolsky... He is a Stanford neurobiologist, and no, he did not say something stupid about the war or swerve out of his lane. Apparently, he's a great guy. All he said was that after 40 years of studying human behavior from that almost chromosome level, he's got bad news for you. There is no free will. If you drive a car into a crowd of protesters, it's the same as having a heart attack, losing control of the car, and driving into the protesters just the same. Or... In the example that he used, if you go into his office and pick up a pen on his desk, it's actually just the inevitable result of an endless series of centuries of what amount to biological algorithms that predisposed you to do that. Thus, there are no morals, there are no ethics, no God, and... Well, look on the bright side, at least this explains Rudy Giuliani. And maybe it explains the co-runner-up, Congressman Warren Davidson of Ohio. 
According to Punchbowl News, at the last Jim Jordan meeting with the holdouts who ultimately sank Jordan's bid to become Speaker, Congressman Davidson explained that it was not Jordan or his team's fault that those representatives were getting death threats. Quoting the report, they are getting the death threats, he said, because they voted against Jordan. But our winners, the in-stadium experience team for Michigan State University. No, these people are not responsible for the team's 2-5 and five record this year, which suddenly looks like a highlight. But somebody did decide, and the school then decided to suspend that somebody, to fill those downtimes before the game began with content that was just lifted from the YouTube product, The Quiz Channel, which they put on the scoreboard at the stadium. A series of historical trivia questions, all of which seem fine if you're online and you're not posting them on the scoreboard at a stadium that seats 75,000 people in the middle of an Israel-Hamas war, so that when the trivia question, what country was Adolf Hitler born in, pops up, and with it comes a giant picture of Hitler on the football scoreboard, thousands of people don't gasp and assume maybe they're having some sort of Trumpian mental episode. Michigan State is very sorry for the use of Hitler's picture. And they also won't steal the quiz channel material again to put on their scoreboard. (laughs) So sadly, you will not see any of these questions when they host Nebraska on November 4th. What was Vlad the Impaler's favorite cocktail? Who were Stalin's backup singers on his famous cover of Midnight in Moscow? Generalissimo Francisco Franco auditioned for which classic TV role? And Satan was born on the same day as this mighty Morphin Power Ranger. Can you name him? Michigan State University football stadium guys. The hashtag for a story like this is fire everybody. Today's worst persons in the world. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years 
and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It started on the night of October 22nd, 2000, and it ended, well, I'll let you know if and when it ever ends. I was enjoying the second night of one of my childhood dreams come true. I was the host, not just of the telecast of the World Series, but it was an all-New York City series, a Mets versus Yankee series, a Subway series. I'd literally dreamt of it since 1967. The manager of the Yankees had been the first person I ever interviewed on TV. Fifteen years earlier, I had worked with him in TV. He was a friend of mine. I had just covered the Mets through their playoff run and knew all of their players. My face had been on an advertisement in dead center field in the Mets stadium for the entirety of the year before, and the players all knew me by name. Where we were that night, Yankee Stadium, was not only where I saw my first baseball game, but was about seven-eighths of a mile from the hospital in which I had been born. And my first home was four subway stops away. The night before this event, as I hosted the start of the first game of this Keithapalooza, I was supposed to introduce the public address announcer of Yankee Stadium, Bob Shepard, whose voice I had heard nearly every day since I was eight years old. So he could then introduce the players and this epic World Series would begin. And it dawned on me in the seconds before I was supposed to do this that I literally had the power to stop the 2000 World Series from ever happening. If I just kept talking and never actually said, here is Bob Shepard. Well, I could delay it briefly until they cut my mic off and then fired me on the spot. Anyway, this was game two. And now that our pregame show was over and I had waved to my mother, who had seen her first game at Yankee Stadium just, ooh, 66 years previously, and she was seated in the family seats that were just nine rows up from our on-field set, I had crawled into the position I would assume for the entire game as the dugout reporter. I was hunched over on a stool, squeezed between the far end of the Yankee dugout and our Fox Sports first base camera. A thin chicken wire fence separated me from the dugout itself. In fact, it was a formality. I was more or less in the dugout. Players, coaches, and that night as I settled in, my friend the Yankee manager all came over to say hello. Roger Clemens of the Yankees, who I had also known since we were both rookies in Boston sports in 1984, he lasted, I didn't, Roger Clemens had struck out the first two Mets hitters. Clemens was a strange man about whom I had heard a strange tale of teammates in a college summer baseball league who were all wearing their wallets in their uniform pants back pockets during a game because one of them explained to a friend of mine, we have this crazy kid Clemens from Texas on this team and we don't trust him. 
In Boston, I had found him a little nervous, a little standoffish, but doing his best to be professional. But by now, there were rumors swirling around Roger Clemens about amphetamines and performance-enhancing drugs, and you knew not to talk to him before or after a game unless you had to. And if you had to, you chose your words very carefully and made sure that whatever you did, you had to start with something mundane, like the score of the game. And if you could let him bring up anything controversial or complex, he would then probably do it. So, now, as this game continued after two batters had struck out, Lee Mazzilli, the former Mets star, now Yankees coach, another friend of mine, was on the other side of a little fence, and as Mets superstar Mike Piazza stepped in as the third batter of the game, Mazzilli leaned in and said conspiratorially, let's see if Raj flips him again. In midsummer 2000, Roger Clemens had beamed Mike Piazza with a fastball, There was a hospital visit involved. Nobody was convinced it had not been intentional or that Clemens would not do it again, even though it was the World Series. Mazzilli and I leaned forward. Piazza was a deeply complicated guy, too. During the playoffs, he had walked up to me and asked me if it was true I was from New York, and then he quizzed me about the relative merits of the suburbs, and then he wanted to know if I had really taken up residence in his favorite Southern California hotel, and we talked for 15 minutes about that. The next night, I saw him, smiled, said hello, and he looked at me like I had just sworn a vendetta against his family. For a long time, I thought it was me until about 10 years later, the great Vin Scully said that Piazza was with the Dodgers, and when they were both together there in Los Angeles, Vin had had the identical experience with Piazza, best friends on the team bus one day, and then no indication Piazza remembered even meeting him the next. I mean, that was Vin Scully. Clemens, as it turned out, did not throw a baseball at Piazza, but instead pitched him inside, in on his hands. And Piazza tried to stop a swing that was half self-defense, but instead, the odd angle and the force of the pitch shattered Piazza's bat. The ball veered to the right, describing a circle into foul territory. The head of the bat shot out towards Clemens on the mound. A second piece flew briefly into the infield. Piazza was left holding just the handle, and it looked as foolish as that sounds, but lost in this description is the fact that that all happened at once. And even from our sign angle in the Yankee dugout, it looked to Mazzilli and me as if Piazza's bat had simply exploded, like it was a trick device of some sort. I saw Clemens reach for the baseball. I thought it was the baseball right in front of him, and then just as quickly, he and I at the same moment realized it was not the baseball. It was the barrel of the bat, which was slightly rounded, just a little darker than a baseball, but could, in the heat of an instant, following a bat explosion, it could be mistaken for a ball. So far, so good. But right then, Clemens, realizing it was part of a bat and not a ball, promptly threw that part of the bat at me. Jesus, Maz, I said to Mazzilli, why did Clemens throw that bat barrel at me? The Yankee coach looked incredulously at me. He didn't throw it at you, he threw it at me. That's what it looked like. We were lined up perfectly. If Roger Clemens had thrown the barrel of Mike Piazza's bat, say, 120 feet, instead of just six or seven feet, he would have hit either me or Lee Mazzilli in the Yankee dugout. As it was... Since nobody knew exactly what was happening, Piazza had started to run down to first base. In case the ball was fair, he didn't know where the ball was either. For that initial split second, you really couldn't tell which flying object was the ball and also whether the ball was fair or foul. So Roger Clemens's throw 
certainly looked like it was aimed at Piazza as Piazza went down the first baseline and as Piazza took umbrage and there was another split second of confusion when it looked like Piazza might charge out to the mound to try to sock Clemens for this and for the midsummer beaning. I said to Mazzilli, wait, did he throw that bat at Piazza? Mazzilli just shook his head. I don't think so. Who in the hell knows? He's been here two years. I haven't figured out anything he's done so far. As the umpires then got involved, Clemens repeatedly tapped his own chest, and not in a bragging way, but in a kind of what looked like that's-on-me way. Two bat boys collected the three main pieces of the bat and a bunch of smaller shards, some of them smaller than a toothpick. The Fox play-by-play man threw it to me in the dugout. Well, I said, I can tell you the Yankee dugout doesn't know what happened or why, Joe. Mazzilli laughed quietly and then hit me in the arm while I was on the air. I postulated that Clemens was looking for a ball hit back to him, instead found the piece of the bat, and then discarded that piece of the bat so he could keep looking for the ball. That he discarded it kind of where Piazza was running might have been deliberate, might have been a coincidence. I do remember suggesting that if Clemens had really aimed the bat at Piazza, that from that distance, with the strength and accuracy of a major league pitcher, he clearly would have hit him with it. Piazza then promptly grounded out to end the inning, and as Clemens came back towards the Yankee dugout where Mazzilli and I were, he again stopped to talk to the umpire, who was Charlie Relliford. Over the noise of 56,000 fans at Yankee Stadium, I couldn't hear a damn thing. But it sure looked like Clemens was again saying, that was on me. I asked Mazzilli if he could find out if that's what Clemens was doing, and half an inning later, Mazzilli reported that Clemens indeed thought for a second it was the ball and that he threw it and that it was on him, and that it was not intentional, and it was not directed at Piazza. Now I did something kind of stupid. I suggested to my bosses that I should go ask the commissioner of baseball, who in a World Series game had the power to eject any player for any reason, although that power had not actually been used since 1934, what he thought of all this. The producer said yes, and I thought, me and my big mouth. I now had to crawl out of that little space between camera and dugout, and I mean literally, crawl, hands and knees, to exit back into the seats via where the groundskeepers kept all the extra dirt. I knew where in the stands the commissioner was sitting. I went there. I got to him. I asked him. He assured me there was no discipline coming for Clemens, and they'd look at the tape of the game again that night or in the morning, but he really didn't think Clemens had tried to hit Piazza with the bat. Well, they would look at the tape, and they decided both that Clemens did not try to hit Piazza with the bat and that he should be fined $50,000 for, I don't know, not trying to hit him with the bat? So I made it back to the dugout, reversing my crawl like I was recreating the movie The Great Escape. As it turned out, Piazza's little squib shot that caused all the trouble with the exploding bat was about the hardest thing they hit off Clemens all night. Over eight innings, he struck out nine Mets batters, he walked none, he gave up only two hits, and he only hit one batter. And then, incredibly, after Clemens left the game, the Yankees almost blew a 6-0 lead in the ninth inning. A Met outfielder named Jay Payton hit a three-run homer off future Hall of Famer Mariano Rivera, And the Mets had a chance to tie the game or go ahead off Rivera in the top of the ninth. And then he got out of it, and the final score was 6-5 to Yankees. And with the game over, now it was Keith interviews Clemens time. 
I went to the prearranged spot at the other end of the Yankee dugout where another friend of mine, the Yankees PR director, had guaranteed me he would go and get Clemens and they would emerge after Clemens left the clubhouse to do what was a contractually obligated interview with Fox and me. Apparently, Roger Clemens started making his way towards me the moment the Yankees finally won that game. Unfortunately, at that exact moment, security closed the only runway from the Yankee dugout to the clubhouse so that a dignitary could use it as an exit from his seats. The dignitary was Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, noted front-running Yankees fan and ticket freeloader, And while Fox literally delayed the start of every newscast on every one of its stations in the country, even on the West Coast, and Joe Buck and Tim McCarver kept showing replays again and again and promising my interview with Roger Clemens, Rudy Giuliani took his goddamn time leaving the field. His idiot son, Andrew, grabbed some dirt from the field. I half expected him to eat it. Instead, he stuffed it in his jacket pockets. Giuliani now waited for his entire entourage, one of his wives... Some of his, I guess they were friends, assorted political riffraff. And as my producers screamed in my ear, where is Clemens? Giuliani waited until they were all together on the field. And finally, he marched them down into the dugout and up through the runway. And after all this delay, Clemens came out. And finally, I could ask him about throwing the bat shard at or near Piazza. And at that moment... I remembered what I had learned about Clemens in Boston. If you started an interview with something controversial, he might very well walk away. If, on the other hand, you did the boring game outcome question, he would answer anything you asked, and he might even bring up anything controversial himself. But you had to do the stupid game stuff first. So, which was harder work, Roger? I asked. Eight innings of two-hit ball or watching the Mets nearly tie it in the ninth? His answer was not bad, but he did not bring up the bat. So I asked another question about what he thought of his performance in that game. Well, that did it. He started talking about having to overcome his emotions in the first inning. And now I could say, well, since you brought up the emotions, the bat throwing incident, did you throw that piece of broken bat at Mike Piazza? There is a freeze frame from that interview in which Roger Clemens' eyes are bugged wide open. Well, Glemons basically confirmed what the guys in the dugout had told me he had told them. You can believe him or not, but he thought the thing he grabbed was the ball. And when it wasn't, he threw it away just in case the ball was somewhere else near him and he had to have a free hand with which to pick it up. He explained the chest taps he was indeed saying to the umpire, umpire Charlie, as Clemens called him, accompanying his apologies to the umps for throwing the bat. He said he didn't even know where Piazza was at the point he threw the bat. It was as straight and nonpartisan and, frankly, as informative an interview as I've ever conducted. Meanwhile, everybody else in that stadium, everybody else in that city, everybody else in the tri-state area was convinced of one of only two things. Roger Clemens had tried to impale Mike Piazza with a shard of his own bat, or the Mets were crybabies who could not tell that Clemens obviously did not try to impale Mike Piazza with his own bat. There was no middle ground. I found this out specifically the next day when the TV sports columnist of the New York Times, Rich Sandemir, who was a friend of mine, called to interview me about the interview. Why didn't you ask him about the bat first? Nobody cared about how he pitched. He threw a bat at, at, at Piazza. I said, you're a Met fan. And I explained the theory of not making Clemens end an interview before he said what you needed to know. I went through the whole thing I just recited here. It was amazing to see 
those few days how every sports reporter and columnist in New York self-identified as either a Met fan or ex-Met fan or a Yankee fan or ex-Yankee fan, and you can still see it today as this story from 22 years ago is recollected by others. They wrote what they felt as kids. Clemens was the victim or Clemens tried to kill Mike Piazza like he was a Dracula and they had the wooden stake to go through his heart. Meanwhile, we learned recently from Joe Torre, the Yankee manager, another one of my friends, that they all hid something from us that night. The thing about emotions, after the incident in the first inning, Roger Clemens went back to the Yankee clubhouse and started to cry. This might have had something to do with embarrassment or grief, but since he had noted that he had had to check his emotions, I always thought, well, he might have been a little overamped for that game, naturally or otherwise. All right, so before I present anything else out of chronological order, let me go back to the moment I thanked Roger Clemens for the interview and threw it back to Joe Buck and Tim McCarver in the Fox booth, because this is when the real trouble started. They were pretty much done for the night, but I had another two hours to go in a live post-game show on Fox's cable sports network. We had about four minutes until that show started, and it suddenly occurred to me that although this was not the most important event in the history of the World Series, the bat would become part of the iconography of baseball. I had been at Yankee Stadium often enough over the years to know the two kids who ran the visiting clubhouse. And right then, they were still packing up the Mets' bats and equipment in the Mets' dugout. So I ran over and asked the senior of them, what happened to the pieces of the Piazza bat? Well, the guy explained that Bobby Valentine, the Mets' manager, had asked that one of the pieces go to a friend of his in the stands. And he, the clubhouse attendant, had handed it to the guy. A second piece, he believed, was kept by the Yankees. He wasn't sure about that. The third piece, the handle, was, where was it? Where is it? He asked the other attendant. It's here in the garbage, the kid said. I did a double take. The garbage? Yeah, the kid said, under the dugout bench. And there it was, stuffed in amid all the empty bags of sunflower seeds and the crushed Gatorade cups. I said, what happens to it now? gets thrown out. They clean out the dugouts first. So I said, look, can I borrow it? This would make a great prop for our postgame show. And the attendant says, sure. And he pulls it out of the pile and hands it to me, just about seven inches of a baseball bat. And all there is is Piazza's uniform number 31 written in magic marker on the bottom. Listen, I said, I, I won't be able to bring this back to you for like two hours. We're on for two hours. Will you still be in the clubhouse? And he said, are you kidding? We have to be here at eight. He and I'll be out of here in 10 minutes. And I said, you want me to bring it back to you for game three? And he says, garbage? You're going to bring back garbage? Throw it out, keep it, whatever. What do I care? So I used the bat fragment as a prop in the show repeatedly. And I stuck it in my shoulder bag. And I thought, I'm not a scrounger, but this is a valuable piece of memorabilia. And I'd like to keep it. So I'll, either I'll auction it off for charity and bid against myself or something, or I'll make a donation to a baseball charity, and I'll keep it. And that was it. And two days later, as the World Series shifted from Yankee Stadium to Shea Stadium, I got a phone call from one of the PR guys at Fox Sports. Did you see the paper? And I said, no, not yet. And he says, Piazza told the guy from Newsday that you stole his bat, and he wants it back. And I said, What? If I hadn't asked about it, it would be on a garbage scow right now being towed out to be dumped in the Atlantic Ocean. 
And he says, maybe, but Piazza told this John Heyman he's going to sue you to get it back. So now I go to the ballpark with extra excitement on my plate. I'm waiting for Mike Piazza to tell me he's going to sue me. So I go out onto the field. I'm wondering how long it's going to be before I run into Piazza. And like two minutes after I step on the field, I turn around and he's walking towards me. And he looks at me and he says, hey, Keith, wild one the other night, huh? Say, listen, when you lived at Shutters, did you ever eat at Ivy at the Shore in Santa Monica? Nothing about the bat. We're talking about restaurants in Santa Monica, California. And I say, well, yeah, but did you ever eat at Shea Jay's? And a big smile from Piazza. Oh, man, I love Shea Jay's. I love Jay. Give me your number. This winter when I'm home, let's go eat at Shea Jay's. And I said, I'll pay for it, and I'll order the sand dabs. Now we're talking about sand dabs, how to prepare sand dabs at a restaurant. And then he says, hey, sorry, I got to go hit. Have a good show. That was it. He's in the paper threatening to sue me. We see each other on the field. He starts the conversation. No mention of suing me. Not one word. Next day in the paper, more Piazza quotes about how he's going to sue me for stealing his bat. Next night, game four of the World Series. We're just about to go on the air with the pregame show, and now Piazza comes over again, coming in from the outfield to the dugout, and he says, hey, this must be really cool to do what you guys are doing. Have a great show. And by now, the only thing I can think of, he does not know I'm the same Keith Olbermann he keeps threatening to sue. So the World Series ends and the Yankees beat the Mets. And if you look for it, there's this photo of the traditional post-game awarding of the World Series trophy and the Most Valuable Player Award. And it's Commissioner Bud Selig and Derek Jeter of the Yankees and me. And just before it happened, George Steinbrenner was the owner of the Yankees. He's crying and he leans in and I give him a hug and reassure him. And he asks me if my mother went to the game. And I said, you know my mother. She'd never come to Shea Stadium. She hates it more than you do. And he says... I love her more than ever before now. So the series ends, and it's not been that great a series, but it's been exciting, and it was the dream from my childhood. And the Yankees have won, and my friends are happy, and I've not heard another word about this lawsuit. Nothing from Mike Piazza. And I told the Fox people, well, if I'm not going to hear anything more from them, it's easy. I'm going to keep the bat, and I'm going to donate $25,000 to this charity, the baseball assistance team, which helps ex-ball players in financial need because, A, I'm not a scrounger. B, it's a great cause. C, that's actually much more than the bat handle would be worth on the open market. And D, the acronym for the baseball assistance team is B-A-T, BAT. And that's perfect. It's about Piazza's bat. You get it? And then nothing for a month. Whereupon Fox gets another letter now from Piazza's agent, a fellow named Manzon, and he threatens to sue again, and that's the end of it. Never heard from him again. So now it's the next year, 2001, and I'm back in New York working for CNN, doing the news, and I go to a Mets game, and I see Piazza, and I give him a big smile, and I offer my hand, and I say, still owe you those sand dabs from Shea Jay, and he just stares at me and walks right past me. And I see a cop I know who works next to the Mets dugout. And the cop says, Mike has been asking him about me. Is that Keith Olbermann, the one who stole my bat? So now I'm not just keeping the bat. I want to sue Mike Piazza for being a pain in the ass. And then 9-11 happens. And ballplayers are doing charity things. And sportscasters and newscasters are doing charity things. And I think, well, this is the time. When the baseball season resumes, I throw the bat handle in my bag and I go out to a Mets game and I go up to Piazza's locker before the game and I pull the bat shard out and I say, take this, Mike, auction it off for charity. Let's do some good with this. 
or if it's too much trouble, you sign it and I'll auction it off. We can leave my name out of it, whatever you want, however you want to do it. And he looks at me like I've just insulted his mother and says, no, it's too complicated. And he turns away and I think to myself, this is the strangest athlete I have ever met. And just before the season ends, I go to another Mets game. Now, this time, it's one of his teammates who takes me aside and says, you know, Piazza never stops talking about you stealing his bat from the Clemens game last year. He says he still wants to sue you. Didn't you try to give him the bat back in the clubhouse to auction off? Didn't I see that? And I say, yeah, I did. And he refused to take it. And the guy laughs and he says, great player, excellent catcher. I love him. Strangest player I have ever met. Comes 2002, nothing happens. See Piazza at several Mets games, nothing happens. 2003, nothing happens. Now, I can't pin the year down on this. It's one of the Red Sox-Yankees playoff series, either 2003 or 2004, and I'm leaving the field as they're clearing the media off just before the game starts. And I'm going out through the Red Sox dugout, literally at the same spot where the kid handed me Piazza's bat handle three or four years earlier, where the trouble all began. And I see the new owner of the Red Sox team approaching from the other end of the dugout. Keith, John Henry, nice to meet you. Have you got a minute? And I said, well, yeah, they're they're kicking the media off the field. So, And he laughs and he says, I can take care of that. And he yells at the plainclothes cop. And he says, he's with me. And the cop nods. And John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox, and I sit down on the Red Sox bench before the start of a Red Sox-Yankees playoff game. And there are no other reporters out there. And I think, okay. What did I say about the Red Sox? What is he pissed off about? Instead, John Henry says, can I ask you about Mike Piazza? And I laugh and I say, sure, what about him? And he says, you have part of his bat from the World Series with Clemens, right? And I say, yeah. And he says, tell me the whole story. So I do, what you've just heard. And John Henry says, that's what I was told. Thank you. Huh. I thought it was me. So that other piece of the bat that was handed to a friend of Bobby Valentine's during that game, that friend is a great friend of mine. And after 9-11, he said, wouldn't it be great to get Mike Piazza to sign this and then we can auction it off for the victims' families or the cops or some other charity? And he gives me the bat and I call the Mets and they approach Mike and they call me and they say, Mike loves the idea and I should come to one of the spring training games and he'll sign it. So the next March, I go to one of the Mets spring training games and I go up to him in the clubhouse and I introduce myself and he looks at me like I'm from Mars. And I say, well, I brought the bat. And he says, what bat? And I explain that we had arranged to have him sign the bat from the World Series for a 9-11 charity. And he erupts at me. I'm not signing that bat. Sure, for charity. You think I was born yesterday? And now I say something to John Henry, owner of the Red Sox, like, welcome to the club. Did he threaten to sue you too? And he laughs and says, yes, that's the next part of the story. So while we're trying to straighten that out, his agent calls me and asks if I will give them the bat to auction off for charity. And I say, sure. And I go to another Mets game and I go to the clubhouse and I have the bat again. Now Piazza says, no, I can't take the bat because of pending litigation. But if I want him to, he'll sign it for me. All I have to do is come back a couple of weeks later. So this is what I wanted to ask you, Keith. Is he the strangest ball player you've ever met, or is it just me? There's one more part to this. Flash forward to 2014. I still have the Piazza bat handle, the one I unsuccessfully tried to give back to Piazza. 
The middle portion, the one John Henry unsuccessfully tried to give back to Piazza, has been sold with the proceeds going to charity. So where is the third piece, the barrel of the bat, the part that Clemens threw at Piazza if you're a Met fan or was unfairly accused of throwing at Piazza if you're not a Met fan? And the answer finally arrives in a sports memorabilia auction catalog that year. While one of the visiting Bat Boys was handing the middle part of the bat to a friend of Bobby Valentine and John Henry's in the stands, the barrel, which landed near the Yankee dugout, was scooped up by the Yankee Bat Boy, who put it in the pile of Yankee broken bats. And as it turned out, right at that point, the Yankees' strength and conditioning coach, Jeff Mangold, who was on the bench, said, wait a minute. That's the pile of broken bats they're going to throw out. They shouldn't throw it out. It's history. And he grabs that part of the Piazza bat and puts it up in his home office. And now it's 14 years later, and he wants to auction it off for charity. So he auctions it off, and I think, well, hell, it should be alongside the other piece of the bat, my other piece of the bat, the handle. So I win the auction. And there it is on my wall, complete with a baseball card showing Roger Clemens about to throw the barrel reasons left to your imagination two-thirds of the famous bat i'll sell it someday i'm sure but i'll always have the memories my memories and john henry's memories and if you're wondering no unlike john henry and i that yankee strength coach jeff mangold never tried to give it back to piazza or get it signed by piazza or auction it off for charity with piazza which means that on top of everything else Jeff Mangold is smarter than John Henry and I put together. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully Studios at the Old Roman Broadcasting Empire in New York. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums. And it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including other Beethoven tunes, arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. Sports music, courtesy of ESPN Inc. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis. It's called The Old Ribbon Theme from ESPN 2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David, and everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 1,022nd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.